Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. There was a lot of negativity because there were just pictures of black people. That was one of the critiques. We just photograph black people. I said, yeah, you photograph just white people. <laughs> that was the argument. In this episode, I speak with artist Adra Collins and curator Sarah Eckhart about the exhibition Working Together, the Photographers of the Kamoinge Workshop. In 1963, a collective of black photographers came together in New York City and named themselves the Kamonge Workshop. The exhibition, Working Together, the Photographers of the Kamonge Workshop, is the first major show on this group and showcases a broad range of their work from the 1960s and 1970s. Members of the Kamonge Workshop produced powerful images registering black life in the mid-20th century. The exhibition explores and celebrates the group's collective ethos, commitment to community, and centering of black experiences. In this episode, I speak with Adra Cowans, one of the original members of the Kamoinge Workshop, and Sarah Eckhart, Associate Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, about the range of work that comprises the Kamoinge Workshop. We met in the exhibition galleries. Thank you, Sarah and Adger, for speaking with me in this podcast episode. Uh, Adger, tell us about the workshop, how it got its start, and its name, and your history with it. It got started in Harlem, there was a group of photographers, which Ray Francis was starting up. He worked in the um, camera store on 125th Street. And I met him going in there every now and then. And one day he called me and he said, look at this. And he had a magazine that I had done a cover for, a theater magazine. He said, I didn't know you were a professional. Uh, I said, yeah. So he said, well, we got this group, man. Could you come up and talk with us? And so they started meeting on Sundays at um, his house. His wife would make chili, and we'd have chili and wine and talk about everything. And um, that's kind of how it got started. And then more guys started coming because they were learning about photography. You know, a lot of them were amateurs in the sense that it wasn't a job. I mean, I was a professional. I made my living taking pictures. And then um, more guys came and they said, well, we don't want to use the name, you know, Galway 32. We want to have a name that defines us as black people. So Al had found this book about the Kukuyu. And so we adopted the word Kamonge, which meant a group working together. So we took a vote on it and Ray voted against it and I voted against it. <laughs> we said, why don't we keep this? If we let people know that we're black, maybe that's not a good thing. And it wasn't at that time. If they knew that you were a black group, immediately were discarded. But we finally voted on it, and we came up with that name, and that's kind of how it got started. After about two years of meeting, going back and forth, Lou Draper said, we better start writing stuff down because we have a history here, and if we die or, you know, Nobody will know about us because we're just meeting and talking. So he started writing notes and minutes, and that became the Kamonge starting uh, historically of Kamonge. That was 1963. How large was the workshop? How many artists? 
Oh, we had about six or seven who were actually founding members who had been coming over the two years every day. Now, Sarah, what about the Kamonge group and its relationship to other similar groups? You know, I think that there were later more connections. I don't know of a lot of connections in the early 1960s between other groups because in part the photography world was so separated from the rest of the art world because this was a moment when photography was not being considered fine art except for a few places like the Museum of Modern Art which is a place actually where the early group um so there were there were two early groups that formed Kamoinge. So there was the group that Adra's been talking about with Ray Francis, and Ray Francis worked in a camera shop and, and had a whole group of friends that he was connecting. And then Herb Randall had met Louis Draper through a class they'd each taken from a photographer named Harold Feinstein. In all this is all happening down in the Greenwich Village area, Lower East Side, completely separate from what was happening up in Harlem. And so they met through this class, and then Herb Randall was working at a film processing center with Al Finar and Jimmy Manis. And so they had formed their own friendship and their own kind of circle where they were supporting one another. Herb Randall remembers really clearly introducing uh, Louis Draper to Al Finar in 1962 at the Robert Frank and Harry Callahan exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art, which I think is such a beautiful moment to imagine because street photography and abstraction were always so much a part of the conversation in Kamoinge. And so you have that sense, though, of the rarity of spaces and places to go to see fine art photography. So I, I think that what the group was doing was really, at that moment in the early 60s, separate from some of the other groups that would form by the late 1960s. And so I think their alliances grew later in the 60s and in the early 70s. But at that early moment, they were really doing something very unique. How political was the workshop? And was it political from the beginning, say, from the March on Washington, in the summer of 63? No, not really. We were concerned about making good photographs, first of all, and representing our people in a positive way because there were so many negative images of African-American people at that time. So that was one of our first goals was to make good photographs and to do pictures of our people in a positive way, showing you know, the love between us. I worked for SNCC at one point where I went down south and photographed. I was there about two or three days after Megar Evers was killed. And I shot up a bunch of stuff. Uh, Herb Randall had been to Mississippi, too. Uh, I think he and I were the only people that had gone down to Mississippi at that time. It was a hotbed. There was a lot going on there. Sarah, how did the Museum of Fine Arts Virginia get associated with this workshop? Sure. So uh, Louis Draper was born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, and his sister, Nell Draper um, Winston, simply brought his photographs to me in 2012, a suitcase of photographs to show me. And I looked at them and I was just knocked over. I thought they were stunning photographs, wanted to learn more. And so at the time, she wasn't sure what to do with his archive. And it was being stored at the University of Virginia's library, but they didn't own them. They were just 
temporarily there. And so she ended up getting a gallery in Richmond, Candela Gallery, that represented her. And there I could sit and read Louis Draper's histories that he had written and go through his notes from Kamoinge meeting minutes in 19, starting in 1963. And I was just absolutely captivated by the story, thought it was incredibly important and needed to be told. And my institution was very supportive of the idea of doing an exhibition. So I started calling the artists, uh, Adger and Tony Barboza and Buford Smith, and quickly developed relationships, and we went from there. What was the workshop's connection with the American Society of Magazine Photographers? So my understanding of the group, and of course I was not there, but from reading the meeting minutes and from talking with some of the founding members, especially Herb Randall and then Sean Walker also who joined early, um, and then from Lou's notes, was that after they formed, Roy DiCarabo was a member of the ASMP and they asked Roy to become their director. So he had not been a founding member, but they specifically out of honor for his work and just at, at, at a respect for him asked if he would be their director. And so he invited them to an ASMP meeting where he was involved because they were really concerned about increasing representation of black photographers. So there had been this emphasis in 1963 in increasing representation of the civil rights. And it was Roy D. Carava who pointed out we should also be increasing the representation of black photographers in ASMP. And that became a point of tension for the group. And from the meeting minutes, a real formative moment when they decided if we aren't going to have representation through groups like ASMP, then it's up to us to represent ourselves. And so while they had been meeting, that was, from my understanding, and from kind of reading along in the minutes, that was when they came up with their mission in 1964 after being really frustrated by those meetings. Patrick? I had done a cover for ASMP, and Roy was a member. I wasn't a member, but they put my photograph, Icarus, on the cover. And Roy and I talked about, well, we really need more representation. I tried to join ASMP, and they didn't take me on, but they used that photograph through my agent. I had an agent. They didn't know I was black. They just liked the photograph. And when she showed it to them, I think if they'd known I was black, they may not have used the image because there were no African-Americans or Negroes or black people in that organization. So Roy became a member and he decided that we should go down and have a meeting with the ASMP some of the people at New York Magazine and other people who publish books and magazines. So there was a meeting, and uh, we all came together, and Gordon Parks was there, uh, too, because he felt, you know, we should have more representation. Well, the meeting got very heated when somebody said, well, you don't hire any black people or show any black people's works. And then um, I forget the guy from the New York Times said, well, we hired Gordon Parks to do such and such and such. And then Roy said, well, that's just one photographer. And it went into a back and forth. <laughs> and then um, Roy got really heated. And um, some people sided with 
Roy. Some people sided with Gordon that, yes, they, they had done something and they were going to hire more African-American people. But I think that meeting kind of blew up and that was in it. Nothing ever happened. What was the American Society of Magazine Photographers? What was its origins and purpose? To represent the works of photographers who worked in the magazine business and in the advertising business. American Society of Magazine Photographers, that's its original title. Then it became American Society of Media Photographers. They changed the name. What about the James Vanderzee Institute? What was that? Uh, James Vanderzee was not known until they did the Harlem on My Mind show. They had a lot of his photographs. And so he became famous at that point because a lot of the photographs of his were in the show. That was the exhibition in 1969, Harlem on My Mind, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yes. He was a local photographer, and uh, there were several along that strip. But then he formed an institution and a gallery, the James Van Dusen Institute. And I think I had a second show there. It was on Park Avenue and uh, 125th Street, that building on the northeast corner. But James Van Dusen became famous after that exhibition. What was its relationship with the Kamoinge workshop? Van Dusen? Yeah. There was no relationship with Van Dusen other than we formed another group. And what we did is we honored our ancestor photographers, older photographers, Roy, we did Roy, we did Fantasy, we did Pope, we did, um, what's his name, Daz photographer, Chuck Stewart. I would say, though, that a few of the photographers, especially Tony Barboza, actually ended up becoming um, assistants working closely with Fantasy. So Tony Barboza helped Fantasy make prints, and then Danny Dawson also worked closely with him. By the early 70s, they were working closely with him. And then uh, when Buford Smith founded the Black Photographers Annual, he was one of the first photographers that they wanted to honor of the older generation. So throughout the 70s, I would say that mm-hmm. maybe not Kamoinge officially, but a number of the Kamoinge artists developed relationships with artists uh, like James Vanderzee and also P.H. Polk was another artist from the South, from Tuskegee, that they were interested in honoring and also helping to preserve their work. Now, the Kamuni workshop was an exhibiting workshop, right? And so how did you uh, decide which photographs to exhibit? Well, we weren't exhibiting in the beginning. Nobody was exhibiting. They didn't have enough work to exhibit. And then Roy came in and... Roy decided that we should get a place to show work. And then we got this place on, I think, 143rd Street, and we had the gallery for a little while. And that was the first show of everybody. You know, there had been some publications, little things here and there, but that was the first time we had a gallery that we showed our work in. How did you decide which photographs to show? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember what people showed, whatever they were doing at that time. But we... They showed, place wasn't that big. Maybe we showed, you know, 25, 30 photographs. But soon enough, the workshop decided to release and exhibit its photographs in portfolios. How did that decision make, was made? Well, we decided, well, nobody is showing our work. What are we going to do? And then Buford decided the portfolio wasn't good enough. We need a book. And then he and, um, what's his name, put all, all that together. And uh, we had the first 
actual black photographers annual. Well, the second portfolio of the workshop included a poem by Louis Draper. Right. Tell us about Louis Draper and about the role that Langston Hughes played in the group. Well, he lived in the house with Langston Hughes. So uh, he was very close with him. And I think that some of that poetry thing rubbed off on Louis. I think that Langston Hughes was important to us because of Roy, because Roy had done this book, Sweet Life, Paper of Life, and he did it with Langston Hughes. So I think that Lou um, was down, didn't have a place to live, and then he invited him to live there. So through that, we had an association with Langston Hughes through Roy. One thing I would point out about Kamoinge's global influence or global perspective, really, from the very beginning is that after Lou studied with Eugene Smith on the Lower East Side, he moved up and lived in Langston Hughes building, as Adger mentioned. And that was really key to his understanding of a lot of things because Langston Hughes was such a mentor to Louis Draper. And one of the things that Louis Draper specifically recalled was how incredibly international the scene was at Langston Hughes' home because he had dignitaries passing in and out all the time. And so Louis Draper ended up having access and would meet these people. And this was the early 1960s, so it was the midst of the sweeping independence movement in Africa, and Langston Hughes was very connected to what was happening and so the naming of the group Kamoinge in 1963, I think it really came out of this conversation that this is one of the reasons why Alf Nahr and Louis Draper were reading Como Kenyatta's book and thinking about what the U.S. civil rights movement meant in the context of a much more global independence movement. And so I think that is one of the ways, in addition to the poetry that Louis Draper was writing, I think that he gained this global perspective from living in Langston Hughes' building and, and really being mentored by him. Now, someone said something in a video that I saw about the negative representation of the group in the press. Did I misunderstand that? Oh, yeah. There was a lot of negativity, you know, because, first of all, it was like, well, why, why a black group, you know? That was really a big deal, not only in the media, but with everybody, what, you know, what are you guys doing? You know, what is this? Why, why form a black group? You know, you're, you're being anti, you know, it's really racist. <laughs> it's funny things that they, people said. But I think that because we bonded together and because we were strong, there was a lot of negativity because there were just pictures of black people. That was one of the critiques that we well, just photograph black people. I said, yeah, you photograph just white people. <laughs> that was the, argument. What about the role of the Black Photographer's Annual? Well, it was a book that showed a cross-section of African-American photographers. It wasn't just Kamonge photographers. It was a lot of other different photographers who were around who were really good. And we felt that we should show as much of what was going on at that time in photography because there were a lot of really good photographers, women photographers, as well as uh, men photographers. Sarah? Kamoinge had always wanted to do a book. So they did a portfolio in 1964 and another portfolio in 1965, but they really wanted to do a book. But it was extremely difficult to come up with the funding for a book. Books are very expensive to make. 
1973, Buford Smith worked with Joe Crawford to publish the Black Photographer's Annual. He was able to find funding through Joe Crawford. And he went straight back to the Kamoinge members, however, to be the photography editors. And they put out a call in a number of different Black publications at the time for photographers to submit their work. So they had at least, if I recall correctly, 2,500 submissions to sort through to pick about 115 images in the first Black Photographer's Annual. So they didn't just make a book of their own work. What they did was make a book that would give more Black photographers the opportunity to publish their work. And it was incredibly popular and successful. And so they did three more annuals over the next seven years uh, with the final one in 1980. So it was not officially Kamoinge's book, and yet it was very much, it was started by Buford coming out of Kamoinge and very much in the spirit of Kamoinge that they published the Black Photographer's Annual. What about the role of music, especially jazz? Well, jazz is, as uh, <laughs> Ted Jones said, jazz is my religion. And that's the way we looked at it, too. We always had jazz music going on at every meeting. We never had a meeting without jazz. And we discussed the latest records of Bird and Train and Dizzy and Miles, you know. We talked about that in relationship to what we did. I mean, Roy D. Carabba had jazz going on in the dark all the time. I had it going on in my loft. I mean, listen to jazz every day. And I started as a musician, so music was very important. And it was very important to all of us because we related to jazz, blues, gospel. That's our music. We were connected to it. We felt it. And we related to it in terms of the way we photographed, too. What about the Kamonge Artist book? Oh, that was later on. That was 90s before we ever had a book. And Tony and, uh, oh, that was a very difficult process <laughs> uh, of getting it done because people wouldn't turn their work in or they turn in and say, we want to do something else. And we went back and forth for a long time, long time. It took 10 years before we finally got the book together. And then Tony and Herb took it over. And they took it to a publisher that I had worked with, actually. And I called Tony. I said, I think that we should go to these guys because they would let us do what we wanted to do, and they would publish. They didn't edit it, but they would publish. Yeah. What about the role of the photography workshops with Harold Feinstein and Eugene Smith, for example? I met Eugene Smith when I was in school. I went to school at Ohio University, which was one of the only schools that gave a degree in photography. And uh, I went there from 54 to 58. So the idea of street photography, we really love Eugene Smith. And we all talked about the hot shot of Schweitzer with his head hanging down in, in there, the uh, country doctor, et cetera, et cetera. He was the quintessential 35-millimeter street photographer. And so we all use mostly 35-millimeter cameras. 
So the immediacy of that, as opposed to, you know, eight by 10 or four by five. But we looked at all those guys that we felt who were Feinstein, uh, Roy, even, you know, Gordon Parks was a part of our discussions too, because I worked with Gordon Parks. He was an assistant when I got out of school. But all those guys were important. We weren't looking so much at the uh, advertising field. You know, we were more concerned about the immediacy of capturing what was around us in our environments. So Eugene Smith was extremely important for Louis Draper because when he moved from Richmond to New York in 1957, he was trying to find a way to learn photography this is Draper. This is Louis Draper. Louis Draper was trying to find a way to learn photography formally. And the Adger's program at Ohio University was one of the very, very few professional programs, college degrees you could get in photography. But Louis Draper had been going to Virginia State and there was not a photography program there. So he left school to go to New York to get his education in photography because back then you found a photographer you admired and you apprenticed. And so for Louis Draper, it was first a class with Harold Feinstein. And then Harold Feinstein was extremely close to Eugene Smith, who lived in this loft where there was just always a scene going on. And one of the things that was a fascinating part of the research was that Eugene Smith taped everything. So he had tapes just rolling all the time for all of these various conversations. And there's been a, an incredible project in which they listened to all of the tapes, came up with a finding aid for them. And this is the Center for Creative Photography that had the tapes and then Duke University that did a, a project on them. And I had an incredible research assistant, Sherea Cochran, who it took her like two days just to go to the through the finding aid to find Louis Draper. But the finding aid made clear Louis Draper was there all the time as his printing assistant. So he was woven throughout these tapes. So Eugene Smith was just an incredibly important mentor. And I think really where Lou learned how to print. And that then became something that he passed along. You know, I think you and Lou were formally trained at that point. And Alf Nahr also working with Jimmy Manis and Herb Randall at a film processing place, all had a lot more experience than some of the younger members that then joined, like Anthony Barboza and Sean Walker and Herb Robinson. But I think that Eugene Smith's class style was really important to Louis Draper in the way that he taught, because he learned from Eugene Smith's seminars that he would hold at his loft. We were all interested in photography, and there was no name for any group at all. And, you know, until Ray said, let's call it Camera 35. But in the beginning, there was no name for any of these guys. And I knew all these other guys, Jimmy. And, and I had met Herb when Gordon Parks Jr. and I lived on 81st Street. And he was on the roof across and he was setting up a camera. <laughs> and he wasn't getting it on the tripod right. And Gordon Jr. and I said, Hey, man, what are you doing over there? You know what you're doing? <laughs> and we went over and talked. And so I had met him before he even was doing anything as a photographer. A lot of people thought, you guys argue too much. But we did. It wasn't actually arguing. It was discussing photography. Somebody put a photograph up that 
wasn't on the case because, you know, Lou and I had been trained. I mean, I learned under Clarence A. White Jr. I knew what a good print was. I looked at Weston's print, actual prints, because there were no books of photography at that time. I saw uh, Ansel Adams' prints because he had them. So we knew what a good print was and how to make it. So we taught these guys. We all knew each other very well. Now, what about the role of women in the group? We've mentioned, I think, only one woman well, so far. Well, all right. Okay, let's get this straight up front. <laughs> there was no problem with women being in our group. And Mean nailed it yesterday when she said what it was actually about her being a photographer and not her being a woman. It's Ming Smith. Ming Smith, yeah. And there were other women came in. Ming, she was a model, and she would hear the conversations and... You know, she said one day, very shyly, I have some pictures because she was like, you guys are photographers, I'm not, you know. And Lou looked at him and he said, yeah, well, okay. He said, you know, show him. And then we talked about her photographs and I think that it really inspired her to begin to shoot more photographs. And, you know, now in the group, we have about five women in the group that have been there for a long time. Sarah, how were the photographs selected for the exhibition, for your exhibition? Well, again, for me, the story began with Louis Draper. So because I could go through his entire archive, hundreds of photographs, I had the privilege of looking at multiple prints of the same image of a number of, of his photographs. So slowly over a couple of years, first, I think I acquired 13 photographs in 2013. And then I went back and got another we we ended up with about 50 photographs of his just by immersing myself in... It's the Virginia Museum. This is the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Yes, I just immersed myself in his photographs, um, working closely with his sister and a gallery in Richmond, Candela. And so I got to know his work really well and chose images that way. And then after that, it was studio visits. And also um, there's a gallery in, in New York, uh, Keith DeLellis Gallery. So he was showing works by Buford Smith and Tony Barboza and Sean Walker. So I saw their works and met them then in person and just started looking. So it was really a process over about five years of doing multiple studio visits. I went out to Connecticut and and spent hours looking through Adger's work and, and Adger would talk about each of the photographs. And after I had time to mull it over, I would pick things, but it was a, a repeated process in that what sometimes would emerge as an important work and we would acquire, you know, these were great photographs, but then I would think back on it after I had seen more work and I started to see dialogues that were happening, thematic dialogues between the artists. And so I went back repeatedly to the photographers and asked to see more work and then built the collection slowly over those years with this idea of conversations that they were having and trying to find works that really spoke to that conversation. Andrew, what brought about the end of the Kamonge workshop? There is no end to Kamonge. It's changing, but there, there was no, we broke up in that course of those years. We broke up three times. We argued and said, well, we're not doing this anymore. It's too hard and everybody's got a different idea and et cetera, et cetera. So we broke up. And every time we broke up, we said, 
Hey man, how you doing? We were calling each other. So where you call? He said, we better get back together. We're talking to each other, you know. And uh, I remember one point, Sean said, everybody can come to my place and meet because we didn't have a place to meet. So for a few years, we were all meeting at Sean's house. In the workshop, I'm the president. <laughs> and we're moving forward. I have hired two people to sort of shepherd the group through a new website, through a new process of grant writing, and we're working on several grants now. We have new, younger photographers in the group. We have about 20 people now. We are working on a show coming up next year in uh, Maryland. We have several other shows scheduled. There's a guy that's going to make a film about my life and relationship to Kamongi and, and photography. So we're not dead. We're not dead. We've never broken up. The original members... Well, a lot of them have passed. <laughs> so there's the end of that end. But the end of the Kamonge workshop has not ended. It's still together. Sarah? So I would just say the dates of the exhibition were really determined by this early phase. Kamonge did a number of exhibitions and worked on things like the Black Photographer's Annual. Even, even though the Black Photographer's Annual wasn't officially Kamonge, the photo editors, everyone running it, it was very much inspired by Kamoinge. And its uh, last issue came out in 1980. And then the International Black Photographers was this other group that Adger spoke about that Kamoinge also was at the core of the membership. And, and the project there was really to support younger emerging photographers and to connect them with the legacy of photographers like James Van Der Zee and P.H. Polk and Roy Di Carava, a number of the photographers they wanted to honor. And so that was this moment that went through about 1982 when there was a lot of activity. But from 1982 until I think it was 1994, Kamonge stayed together quietly as a group of friends, but didn't really have formal activities. And then when they started again in the 1990s, they welcomed in a number of new artists. So for the sake of the exhibition, I really wanted to focus on the photographic dialogue that was happening in those early years, because that was such a close-knit group for about 20 years that I felt like that could give us this conversation. They definitely continue and, and they go forward, but it becomes a much larger group and a larger conversation. And so I think there are a lot of future exhibitions to be had out of the many conversations that emerge out of these early years. That quiet period you're talking about, we did our own shows. We did our own exhibitions. We did about four different exhibitions. One was on the black woman, and we had, you know, a little catalog for that. One was on just um, street photography. We did one about children, and we did one about couples. But we receded from the scene <laughs> as the Komonge group. We were brought in a lot of other people, and then it got... And then some people left, and it changed. And, but as Kamongi, the name, we always showed under the Kamongi name. It was never gone. And then, you know, after Tony stepped down, well, he was voted down. <laughs> I became the president, and uh, Russell. And then we went forward. And we still had meetings. You see, the problem 
was finding a place where we could meet as a group. That was always the problem. And then we finally saw that, and Danny was working up at Columbia, so we had meetings up there. Uh, and we went from every Sunday to every other Sunday. And now we meet once a month online because of COVID. But we're beginning to come back. And I just uh, initiated a big party for us at my place in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, the early part of this year, where everybody came and we were together, you know, just partying. (laughs) So we have a lot of things planned for the future. We're looking right now for a place, a house, a building that we can have a home and all our work is there and cataloged, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we're working on. Because I think that going forward, it's on us to define our own destiny, which is something I always talk about. You can't wait for somebody else to do your work for you. So if we have a place, then we can teach classes, we can have dark room and everything. So that's my focus as president is to find a building that we can have a home. Well, let's go look at some photographs. Okay. Tell me about this picture, Three Shadows, 1966. I shot this actually in the Bronx in my uh, girlfriend's house at the time. And I was looking out the window and I'd shot some pictures and I saw these three girls coming down street and I waited for them. There are four shots in this series, but this is the one that I liked. And in my first shot, there's another part here showing the street and a car, which gives you the time that was shot, which is in the sixties. We should make clear to people that we're looking at the photograph that shows three women walking down the street, casting great long shadows from themselves so that it looks like they are Three shadows walking down the street. Yeah, but the name of the photograph is Three Shadows. What about this one, Footsteps, 1960? I called it Footsteps. A lot of people looked at it and called it Black Man in a White World. But for me, it was about the footsteps that he made in the snow in this isolated way. And this is very abstract, but it's also about the way he's leaning into the wind, the way he's got his head down. You know he's walking. You have that feeling. But it just sets up a motion, you know, with all the snow. And and this one, Egg Nude of 1958. I shot this when I was in the Navy and my wife came down. We got housing for married couples. It's actually a shout-out to Edward Weston, the idea of human form becoming something else. You see that it's a nude, but it's also indicative of birth and a lot of, there's a lot of symbolism in that image. My wife complained when I was taking this picture. She did not want to be photographed naked. But when this was shown at the Metropolitan, when they first did the show of American photography, and she was standing by the photograph, and somebody said, oh, that's a great picture. She said, oh, that's me. (laughs) What about this picture? It shows a kind of storefront uh, church. It's called Little Flower Baptist Church, 1962. shows a cross in the background. 
her and I both photographed this building. And uh, I used to walk around Harlem with my Leica, and I just loved this picture because of the writing and what it said. And they were building something, so it says, danger, keep away. And I'm sort of not a very religious person. <laughs> What about these moving pictures here? Malcolm X, 1963. Malcolm X speaks, showing a big crowd of people in front of a platform. Or this one, Betty Shabazz at Malcolm's funeral, 1965. This is Malcolm X in Harlem. I had a 180 millimeter lens that I shot that with. But this was a shot for me, which I got on the building and I climbed up to the top floor and shot. And what I like about this photograph is you see all these shadows. You know, people are saying, oh, Malcolm X this, Malcolm X that. But I wanted to show the immense crowd of people that were following Malcolm X. And I love these little shadows. It almost becomes pointillism. But it's a different point of view about Malcolm as opposed to that he's a bad guy, etc. This is at the funeral of Malcolm X, and this is Betty Shabazz waiting to come out, and this is the side door to the church, and I lived on 150th Street and Convent Avenue, and at that time, and I was passing by, I didn't even know, and I knew this guy with the camera here, he was in the union, I was in the uh, cinematographer's union, and so I jumped in there, he said, come on, <laughs> because they had, you know, the banisters up, and then you couldn't get close. And I was able to get that particular shot. And I like it because it's a quiet moment. You know, everybody's looking somewhere else. And she's into herself, you know, the tears and then the feeling. And what about this one, Juca, Woman and Child, 1969? I went to, I guess it was called Suriname at that time, which was south, what was it? You had... Um, French Guiana and Dutch Guiana, it was called. And this was Dutch Guiana. And this is up in the bush, about two and a half days by boat. And I wanted to photograph the Juca people. I just love this particular shot. She's got the baby. She's balancing the clothes, the kettle, and she's stepping over and everything. There were 16 photographs in the original show called the Jukas. They were the frontline warriors in fighting for their freedom. Tell me about this one, Mama's Ohio Piano, about 1965. Mama's Piano. I love this photograph because my mother played this thing over and over again. It's dog-eared. You can see how dog-eared it is from her, you know, opening up and playing. And then Ebony Magazine, which was a symbol in black communities. You know, you had to have Ebony Magazine. Like most people had Life Magazine. We had Ebony and this is me and my brother and my cousin, his wife, and my other brother and my sister and my trumpet. That was the first instrument I had was the trumpet. I love the title of this piece of sheet music. Yeah. Everybody knows this tune, Bless This House. My mother played the piano and I played the trumpet in church. What about this one? Far and away, 1970, photograph taken on a rooftop showing the cloud formations at dusk. I had a um, rooftop penthouse at 340 West 86th Street. And um, this is the sun going down. I love the way the sky looked. 
And then this little tiny airplane there just kind of set the whole tone off about that picture. Let's end this uh, accordion fold book, Kamonge artist book, 1972. It starts the exhibition, then it ends the exhibition. The Kamonge artist book is one of, I think, the most symbolic and powerful objects in the exhibition. What you're looking at is an accordion, folded out accordion style book, which was handmade by Tony Barboza in 1972 as a Christmas gift. He made 14 books for the 14 members and he made a portrait of each of the members and then he asked each member to choose their own photograph and he asked them to print it. Some of them made their own prints. A few of them, I think Tony made the print for them from their negative in his own studio, but they're all printed to be the same size. And then he compiled them and then connected them as a book. And so you have this sense of their individuality, and yet they are literally bound together as a group. And so I think it's a beautiful place to begin and end the exhibition because you have that sense of how this is a collective of individual photographers who all have their own individual vision and yet have chosen to stay together over all these years. Thank you, Adger and Sarah. It's a very moving and beautiful exhibition. Congratulations and many thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. The exhibition just looks incredible. Thank you so much. Working Together, the Photographers of the Common Gay Workshop is on view at the Getty Center through October 9th, 2022. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003 and is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. And if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, Write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.